All right, uh, hey, good morning, everybody. Uh, if you take your seats. Um, good morning. So um, if you don't know me, my name is Mark Clemens. I am, I'm the purest layman. I'm not, not in any way a pastor or a theologian, so there will be no pastoral or theological accuracy um, in what I'm about to say. <laughs> so, you know, please just uh, call me out on that. Um, I was really excited when I found out that I was scheduled on the Sunday right after Thanksgiving because it meant I would embarrass myself in front of like the, the minimum number of people. Um, but it actually is, um, it's very meaningful for me to be here. Um, today in particular, um, I started coming to All Souls on the Feast of Christ the King in 2015. So this is kind of my liturgical anniversary, I guess. Um, so I'm very, very pleased to be here with you today. That means a lot to me. Um, so I want to uh, talk today a little bit about St. Aelred of Riveau. Um He's probably one of the more obscure people in the litany, um, but he's flagged as a teacher specifically, and I specifically want to look at his teaching on uh, Christian friendship. So um, before we get into that, um, let's pray. There's a, a collect that I've actually stolen from uh, his feast day, which is in January. We're going to translate that to today. Um, would you pray that with me, please? Almighty God, who endowed Aelred the Abbot with the gift of Christian friendship and the wisdom to lead others in the way of holiness, grant to your people that same spirit of mutual affection, so that in loving one another, we may know the love of Christ and rejoice in the eternal possession of your supreme goodness through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who is alive and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Thanks. Um, so, there are, right. so there are two epigraphs uh, to this talk. One of them is from uh, John Henry Cardinal Newman, the famous Anglican convert to Catholicism. Um, he's also a theologian and other things, but that's kind of what we think of him as. Um, he says... The best preparation for loving the world at large and loving it duly and wisely is to cultivate an intimate friendship and affection toward those who are immediately about us. Keep this in mind as we go. Um, the second epigraph is just a dumb joke that I saw on Twitter. It's been around for a long time, I think, but the, uh, the most concise expression of it I've seen is this. Uh, Nobody talks about Jesus' miracle of having 12 close friends in his 30s. <laughs> you, for you students, that's the laughter of recognition that you hear. Um, so a brief historical context real quick, just like lightning around here. Um, Aelred is the abbot of Riveau. He's living in the early to mid like 12th century, so 1100s. Um, Riveau is a monastery that's way up in the north of England. Um, in Yorkshire, kind of near the Scottish border. Um, he is a Cistercian. Oh, actually, before we do that, here's, so here's what Riveau looks like today. Um, like a lot of monasteries, it got sacked by Henry VIII in the 16th century. Um, you know, he dissolved it and took all the gold and lead and anything that was valuable and just kind of left it as a ruin, and that's what it is today. Um, but at one time, it was one of the largest and most active monasteries in England. Um, so it's a Cistercian abbey. Um, the Cistercians, I'll talk a little bit about them. They were uh, a French movement that was out to reform the Benedictine order. They felt like the Benedictines had gotten kind of too soft. They were too rich. They were too cozy with power. Uh, they were going to get back to the original rule of Benedict. They were going to be doing manual labor themselves. As you see there, there's an image of them working in the fields. Sometimes they would actually mine as well. Uh, there were some mining operations involved with their monasteries. Um, and they're kind of these at least in the 12th century, um, they're these kind of hipstery, back-to-the-land type people. Um, you know, like if they were Wheaton students, they'd be the kind who won't shut up about Wendell Berry. Um, so, uh, but they really, uh, they were kind of, um, they really just exploded in the 12th century under the leadership of Bernard of Clairvaux, who we know from our hymnal and some other places. Um, so, basically, like before the Franciscans and the Dominicans start up in the next century, um, if you were kind of interested in hanging with the cool kids theologically, like this is where it was at, this is where you wanted to be. So when Aelred becomes a Cistercian, he is really uh, 
he's at the vanguard of Christian thought at that time and in that place. Um, and this is kind of important to keep in mind. He's going to promulgate some ideas that are, um, even today, feel a little odd to us, a little risky, and I think much more so in his time. Um, so, uh, all that being said, uh, Elred is an obscure figure for a long, long time. He still basically is. Um, he was known, if anything, for his writings on church history, but today we mostly think of him um, for his devotional writings in the last couple decades, and especially like the last maybe 10 years, there's been a really uh, kind of revived interest in uh, some of his teaching. And this, this book right here, this is, this is the one. It's called Spiritual Friendship. And if, you, if you're interested in reading him at all, if you're interested in finding uh, anything more about what I'm saying, um, this is the one to read. There's a couple other really great books of his that, are, uh, that you can find for reasonably cheap out there, but Spiritual Friendship is the one. And I wave this around specifically because you want, you want this cover. There's another translation out there that's not very good. Um, but anyway, um, so friendship then. What is friendship? What, what are friends? This is a real question. I'm, a, I'm asking you this. That's an excellent answer. Anybody want to top that? Yes. I love that. Yes, that's that's exactly right. Both of these definitions are um, we're not kind of segregating friends and family, which I like. This is uh, this is good. Um, anybody else want to take a crack at it? Yeah. C.S. Lewis says friendship is the kind of love in which two people. That's that's exactly right. Yeah, and in the four loves, um, I'll repeat that. Lewis says that like friendship is is a love where uh, two people are kind of absorbed in a common pursuit, and, and and he contrasts this to romantic love where two people are absorbed in each other. Um, he says no. Instead of looking into each other's eyes, they're standing side by side looking at some third thing. Um, I actually kind of disagree with this, so I'm very glad that you brought it up. Um, but uh, okay, so uh, let's try softball then. Uh, should Christians have close friends? Yes. Okay, there's a resounding yes. This is good. This, this was not always a no-brainer, okay? This was actually kind of a controversial idea for a long time. Um, there, there were those, especially in the monastic movement, some of the more severe ones who said that, no, 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 friendship is part of the world. It's something that we have to renounce when we renounce the world. We have to transcend that. Um, even Augustine, you know, who uh, in the Confessions very beautifully um, in book four talks about the death of his friend and how, and how greatly he was uh, grieved because of that. He kind of comes to the conclusion that, well, my love for this friend was something that I was trying to substitute for the love of God, and it was ultimately something getting in the way. I needed to realize that this is something mortal uh, that would perish. He says, Wherever the human soul turns itself other than to you, he's, he's talking to God, it is fixed in sorrows. In these things, there is no point of rest. They lack permanence. So he's kind of saying, you know, friendship is, we have to remember, this is something that will pass away. Um, jump ahead about 1,200 years. Jeremy Taylor says, Christian charity is friendship to all the world. When men contract friendships, they enclose the commons. And what nature intended should be every man's, we make proper to two or three. So for Taylor, uh, friendship is not only this kind of passing thing, but it's actually actively detrimental to social justice. He opposes the two of them. Uh, you know, when we are friends with people, he seems to be saying we're ne necessarily neglecting those who are outside of the circle. Um, jump ahead again. Here's Kierkegaard. Let the poet search the New Testament for a word about friendship which could please him, and he will search vainly unto despair, right? That's a very, that's a very characteristic uh, Kierkegaard kind of thing to say, right? Um, and it's, it, I'd also like to note that it's pretty clear he hasn't really read the New Testament very carefully. There's a lot in there about friendship. Um, but, you know, even somebody as, as beloved as Karl Barth says, although Christian love for the neighbor and brother does not exclude friendship, right? This is a very kind of charitable thing. He's, well, okay, maybe we can keep friendship in the mix here. It's not in any way tied to it, right? Um, so for Bart, friendship is this kind of bonus, but it's not really the point of the Christian life. It's this kind of thing off to the side. Um, and uh, in Elred's context, in monastic communities, there was kind of an extra layer going on here. Um, a lot of uh, monastic writers 
were kind of concerned about friendship because they saw it as one, an opportunity for creating division between the monks, right? It was very important to keep everybody on the same page and united in your common mission. And friendship was a way that you might fracture that. Um, You okay? Oh. We, we've all been there. I'm glad you're okay. Um, so one, we were concerned uh, that friendship was going to divide the monks. And then second, uh, there was a concern that it would be an occasion for sexual temptation. Um, this is something that a lot of the uh, monastic writers in uh, kind of the medieval ages and earlier are really concerned about, well, how do we keep... Um, these monks from uh, having like romantic feelings for each other. Um, Elred is really has no patience for any of these um, interpretations. Um, he would disagree with all these folks that I just cited to you. Um, by the way, I did not read through all of their corpuses and compile that. That's um, I got that list from a, a book by Wesley Hill, which is really great, and I'll talk about that more. Um, so here's what Elred has to say about that. The, those men are beasts rather than human beings who declare that a man ought to live in such a way as to be to no one a source of consolation, to no one a source even of grief or burden. Um, I'll note that this is kind of hard for Midwesterners, right? We don't like burdening people. Um, caring to cherish no one and to be cherished by no one. Um, when I first read this passage in Spiritual Friendship, I thought, like, yeah, what a monster. Who would be like that? But like, the more I reflect on it, I think it actually does represent some some things inside of me that I'd rather not acknowledge. Um, maybe you feel the same way. Um, so again, we're kind of left with, well, all right, if this is what friendship is not, and if friendship is acceptable to uh, the Christian, as Elred feels that it is, that it's a really central part of the Christian life, all right, so still, what is it? Um, uh, I want to look at something in the book itself. This is not what Elred says, but this is what... Um, one of his friends and one of his um, inferiors in the monastery, Walter Daniel, has to say about it. Um, I, sh I should note here real quickly that Spiritual Friendship, the book, is, um, is written in the form of a dialogue, uh, which is you know, kind of a real common form for like ancient medieval philosophy. Right? Plato did it. Um, a lot of people did it. But um, you know, so these are uh, conversations that Aylred is recording with three different monks about the subject of friendship. Uh, as far as we know, these monks are real people. Um, one of them actually went on to write a life of Aylred later on. Um, but, you know, these aren't like verbatim records of, they're not transcripts, right? He's making things up and embellishing and, uh, you know, expanding on things to make his point. But um, I just want to note that I think it's really lovely that uh, this work that is about friendship is structured in the form of a conversation between friends. That's, that's really kind of a beautiful touch. Um, but so here's what uh, Walter has to say uh, about friendship when Aylred kind of charges him to define it. He says, all right, well, friendship is to converse and to jest together with goodwill to humor one another, to read together, to discuss matters together, together to trifle and together to be in earnest, to differ at times without ill humor, to teach one another something or to learn from one another, with impatience to long for one another when absent, and with joy to receive one another when returning. Um, and when I first read that, I thought, well, yeah, totally. That, that sounds exactly right. Um, I, I love what he's saying there. Um, Elrod doesn't think very much of this. Uh, what Elred has to say about this is that, no, 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 this, this friendship belongs to the carnal, and especially to young people. He makes a point of saying this. Uh, and yet, this friendship is to be tolerated in the hope of more abundant grace and as the beginnings of, so to say, a holier friendship. So he doesn't have a lot of patience for this view of friendship, but he says, well, we can start here. Um, this is another thing I really love about Elred's writings is that he is constantly finding ways to kind of extend grace and to give us an already where we feel like there's only a not yet. You know, um, he's, he says, well, this, this is not great, but there is something good there. There is, there is the love of God there, and um, we should call that out and build on it, right? Um, There's something really lovely about him. So um, let me, I'll put it to all of you. What's wrong with Walter's answer here? So I'll move out of the way so you can read it a little better. Nothing. I'm going to guess that there's, there's nothing about like encouraging one another in the Lord or <laughs> kind of spurring one another on to holiness or something. Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. Um, if anybody wants to take another shot at it, yeah. I was saying, it doesn't seem like there's really anything like intimacy in a broad mm. sense of the word 
Yeah, yeah, that, I, I really, I'm glad that you said that. Um, it's just kind of hanging out, right? There's no, um, that there's no moral dimension to it, right? They're not building each other up in any kind of way. You could, this could equally describe, you know, a bunch of saints sitting around and talking, or like the rankest sinners, and it doesn't really affect the definition here. So this is this is important, right? Um, okay, so then Elred, what is friendship? All right. Uh, he gives us a definition. He's kind of riffing on the Roman writer Cicero, but he, um, he goes on to give it a really Christian spin. He says, okay, friendship is mutual harmony in affairs of human and divine coupled with benevolence and charity. I'll read that again. Friendship is mutual harmony in affairs human and divine coupled with benevolence and charity. So uh, mutual harmony, when we read that, that ought to maybe ring some bells for us. For me, it put me in mind of First Corinthians 12, where Paul gives us this image of the church as a body, right? There are many members, but one body. They're all acting in accord to bring about God's will. Um, so if we think of the church, um, we're going in the right direction, because this is the direction that Aylred is bringing us to. Um, right after he offers this definition, mutual harmony, coupled with benevolence and charity, he goes to Acts 4. And he says, were they not, according to this definition, strong in the virtue of true friendship of whom it is written, and the multitude of believers had but one heart and soul, and neither did anyone say that aught was his own, but all things were common unto them, right? Um, I I love that he's kind of phrases this rhetorical question. You can hear the passion in it, right? Um, Yeah, absolutely. Um, So the first image he gives us of friendship is, is the church kind of at its best, um, and I think that that's, that's really telling, and we should keep that with us as we, as we continue. Um, but so these terms, charity and benevolence, those are a little nebulous, and he goes on to delve into, well, what does that actually mean? Um, so for him, charity is affection of the heart, the kind of natural just love that you might have for somebody else um, without really thinking about it, without, you know, you, there's not a lot of control you have for it, just like I feel a fondness towards this person, you might say, right, or an affection for them. Um, and benevolence, he says, is carrying that affection out indeed, you know, so you're actually doing stuff for them. So kind of the formula that he hits on here is this idea of natural affection plus rational action. For him, that's, that's the recipe for friendship, um, right? And by rational action, what I mean is that we don't just like our friends and we don't just hang out with them, but we actually act on that feeling towards them and we do things for them, right? We're kind of making a choice to will the other's good, um, is kind of maybe a highfalutin way of putting it. You know, we pray for them, we do things for them, we support them in any number of ways, right? Um, so if you drop out any one of these terms, you've got something that's incomplete friendship. And, you know, Elrod's a good medieval philosopher. He spends a lot of time making very fine distinctions about, well, okay, what actually is and isn't true friendship, um, right? If we have just natural affection um, that's not harnessed to any of the virtues, um, you've got a friendship that kind of spirals out of control. You know, I mean, I think a lot of us... Um, maybe have had relationships like this where initially there's a sort of attraction to somebody or fondness for them. Hey, you're fun. You seem cool. I want to hang out with you. Um, and then as you get to know this person a little more, you sort of realize, oh, th- this, this is not a good situation for me to be in. This person is actually not uh, healthy, you know, and, and there's not a lot I can do for them. And in fact, they're making my life worse, right? Um, yeah, a few people are nodding here. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, we, we might think of... Um, you know, the, the, the group of frat boys, like, sta- you know, at a kegger, right? They're, like, you know, standing around encouraging each other to drink to excess, to take advantage of women. You know, we can say that in some way they have a fondness for each other. Like, yeah, there's probably a way that they care about each other and enjoy each other's company, um, but they are not willing each other's good, right? They're, you know, this doesn't pass the, the Philippians 4-8 test. You know, it's not good. It's not noble. It's not right and all that stuff. Um, okay. So that's bad. Uh, Hellred calls that carnal friendship or sometimes childish friendship. Um, but if we have just rational action and we take out the natural affection piece, um, what you've really got is this kind of cold relationship where almost you're just using the other person for what they have, what they can offer to you. You don't actually you know, care about them in, um, emotionally. There's no emotional connection there, right? Um, and, uh, you know, Edward says, no, this is a problem, too. He calls that worldly friendship. Um, and he actually points out that, hey, monks make the best friends because there's nothing of theirs that you can covet, and they don't want anything of yours. All they can do is pray for you, right? <laughs> um, but there's, there's also a second way that this kind of comes into play in our lives um, that Edward points out, and I really like this. I mean, this is... Um, 
this kind of purely rational relationship and rational love that we have for each other, um, that's something that I think every Christian knows really well, right? It's that experience of, I don't like this person, but I know that I am commanded to love them, so I'm just gonna grit my teeth and love them. You know, and that's like the best I can do. That's all I've got right now. Um, and Elred commends that. He said, this is okay. Um, and he sees that kind of separation, that like love without affection, um, as a consequence of the fall, actually. So, um, right, so we've got these two halves here, but like, man, when they act together, when you have, uh, you know, you're kind of the Christian love that we're commanded to show towards people, when you are with someone who you already like and who you care about naturally, and those two things are working in harmony, that is a beautiful thing, right? This is, uh, this is what Elred calls the true friendship. This is spiritual friendship. Um, Right, this is, he says, this is where reason itself finds pleasure. Oh, it's kind of a beautiful phrase, right? Um, there's, that, there's that alignment between feeling and knowledge and will. And he goes even farther and says that, no, so this, this kind of experience, when we have this in those rare relationships on earth, that's a foretaste of the kingdom. Um, right, that is a stage border, I'm quoting him again, that's a stage bordering upon that perfection which consists in the love and knowledge of God. Right? So at at that future time when grace is going to perfect us and when all those natural affections that we don't necessarily feel for everybody, right, that will be mended and we will feel that way about everybody. And so it sounds kind of goopy, kind of facile to say, well, in heaven we'll all be friends. But that's actually like really like deeply and profoundly uh, true and like something that we should hope for, right? Um, so, okay. That sounds great, right? Um, would that we could all have that kind of friendship with people. Um, what's this look like? Uh, and it, this is, it, um, it's not bad news, but what it looks like is that it's going to be really difficult, right? If friendship is going to edify us, if it's going to engender virtue in us, if it's going to help us grow in virtue and help others grow, uh, if it's going to increase our love of God and neighbor, it's going to look a lot different than how we normally conceive of friendship, which I think in our culture looks something like the answer that Walter gave us a little earlier. You know, it's kind of just hanging out, enjoying each other's company. Um, no, no, you know, and we often conceive of friendship as this, this purely elective thing. You know, these people come into our lives, we like them, we spend time with them, um, but when life pulls us apart, well, okay, you know, it's sad, but we just sort of move on, and there, there's, there's no recourse for that. There's no way around that, right? Um, so what we want and what Aylred is pushing us towards is something that's a little thicker, that's more durable. Um, but it's also going to be hard. It's going to entail obligations to each other, right? Um, that's a word that we don't really like in, in American culture, I think, specifically. You know, we hate uh, being obligated to other people, and we also get really uncomfortable when people are obligated to us for something, right? Um, and the, there's a sort of notion of autonomy uh, that comes along. Uh, with that, I'll, uh, I'm going to quote the writer Wesley Hill on that, uh, and he also wrote a book called Spiritual Friendship, um, kind of modeled on Aylred's. That's a really wonderful read. I'd also commend that to you. Um, but he says about autonomy, this is the myth that the less encumbered and entangled I am, the less accountable and anchored I am to a particular relationship, the better able I am to find my truest self and secure real happiness, right? It's that kind of... Um, the, the notion that like keeping, keeping yourself a little bit isolated you know, um, helps you to listen to whatever sort of truest self is inside of you, right? Um, and that relationships muck that up a little bit. They make it harder to hear that. And so um, what we end up doing is kind of treating relationship as these sort of transient things that are like nice to have, but you know, um, don't let that sway you from what you're supposed to be doing, from you know, um, kind of finding yourself, right? Um, Elrod has no patience for this at all. Um, he says, what wisdom is there in despising friendship so that you may avoid solicitude, be free from cares, be devoid of fear, as if any virtue can be acquired or preserved without solicitude. Um, that, that is care for others, right? Love of neighbor. Um, you know, it's, it's a kind of a Christian cliche at this point, but we're relational beings, right? We, um, and we don't just enjoy each other's company, but we actually need it and other people need us. Um, Right? It's not good for man to be alone, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so um, 
this is something that we sort of like implicitly acknowledge, I think, and I think it's something that we all desire, but just in our culture, there's not a lot of language for, um, for putting this into play. We don't really have a way to conceptualize this. So I'm gonna offer a couple models um, that occurred to me while I was reading uh, Elred. Um, I think this friendship looks kind of by turns, maybe um, there's a pastoral dimension to it, and there's a dimension to it that looks almost spousal. Um, and I'll get into that one uh, in a minute. But okay, so the, the pastoral aspect of it is that right, we're helping each other grow in virtue, right? Um, Elred has a really kind of lovely uh, point where he says, well, the, the virtuous person is not the one who's naturally good, but it's the one who struggles to work out his vices, right? It's, it's good to be friends with those who struggle, uh, especially if they do it well. Um, it's good for us, too, because we all struggle, right? And we, we need friends to help us through that. Um, so this entails, obviously, you know, praying to each other, uh, or praying not to each other, excuse me. <laughs> all right, I got my heresy out of the way this morning. Good. Um, no, in praying for each other, right? Um, and El Elred says about praying for each other that you know, when prayers come from a friend, they are the more efficacious in proportion as they are sent more lovingly to God, which is a very foreign notion to us Protestants. But like the idea that you know, because you love someone more, you're going to pray for them more fervently, and so they're going to be more effective prayers. Um, I don't know, there's, there's something to ponder there. And he gives lots of practical advice throughout this book on uh, how to correct your friends, uh, when they're doing the wrong thing, how to forgive them when they've done you wrong, and uh, having corrected and forgiven them, how to actually like bring them back into the fold sort of gently, you know, so that they don't feel condemnation or judgment. Um, he, I really like how he gets down to brass tacks. Um, and he also talks about what to do when friendships end. Um, you know, if, if a friendship must be broken, and for him that's basically either because of like severe pride or outright cruelty. Those are the only two reasons. There's no other reason you break up your friendship. Um, when that happens, well, we're still on the hook, right? We still have to love them. We still, there's that rational portion, even if the, the natural affection is gone, right? We still, um, we still gotta love them. We still have to pray for them. Um, uh, part of what makes this work for him and what makes it not like a true pastoral relationship is that he insists on absolute equality between friends. In this, you know, there, you can't lord it over each other when you forgive them. You have to really forgive them, and they have to accept your forgiveness. You can't have this kind of trump card that you hold in your back pocket, like, oh, remember when you did this, you know, right? You have to leave that behind. Um, and it's not just a kind of spiritual equality, but also um, material equality. He does, he says, you know, how can there be true friendship and, uh, you know, one heart and one soul where there is not one purse? Um, you know, again, right, he points out that, hey, you know, um, monks make the best friends. All they've got for you is their prayers. Um, so uh, the other part of this is that trust is a really enormous component of uh, this kind of friendship. Aylred emphasizes over and over again, um, like, confidence in friendship, which is really interesting to me. Like, he says specifically, like, you have to keep your friends' secrets, and you can't keep anything from them. You have to tell them everything. They can't share that, right? Um, this seemed a, a little odd to me. Let's see, did I have the next? Yeah, 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 okay. So that, and I thought, well, that's sort of interesting that he emphasizes that so much. Um, that's not, you know, I, I guess that is a part of friendship, but I don't think of it as like a crucial part of friendship. Um, but um, then when we look at John 15, which is kind of the, the biggest moment in the Gospels where Jesus talks about friendship specifically, right? Greater love has no man than that he lays down his life for his friends. Um, but a couple of verses later, right? He says, no longer do I call you servants, but I have called you friends. Why? For the servant does not know what his master is doing. I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my father. I have made known to you. Jesus is saying, I've, I've told you everything, right? Um, and then I start thinking about the, the concept of the messianic secret, you know, points in the Gospels where Jesus specifically says, hey, don't tell anyone about what, I'm, what I've done here, right? Um, so that, that element of like trust and confidence um, and kind of that, that closed circle of, of trust there um, is actually um, modeled in Jesus, which I was, I was a little surprised to see. Um, but then you start thinking about the seal of the confessional um, that, you know, in Catholic practice, and you think, okay, this is actually... Um, there's something very pastoral about this aspect of friendship. Um, okay. 
So I've said that friendship is in part, uh, the model that Elred gives us is in part kind of pastoral looking, but it also, um, it, the, the, really the best analogy is, is um, between spouses. Um, so here's at one point in uh, spiritual friendship, Elred has this to say, what happiness, what security, what joy to have someone to whom you dare to speak on terms of equality as to another self, one to whom you have no fear to confess your failings, one to whom you can entrust all the secrets of your heart and before whom you can place all your plans. What therefore is more pleasant than so to unite oneself in the spirit of another and of two to form one? All right, so right there at the end, he's, re he's using explicitly uh, marital language um, to talk about friendship. Uh, this is really interesting to me. And the more I read Elred, the more I realized that he, he doesn't see marriage as kind of a separate case. He's not this is not an analogy for him. He's not saying friendship is kind of like marriage. He's saying marriage, it's actually the other way around. Marriage is just a special case of friendship, um, which is not, not how we always think of it. Um, right, he says elsewhere um, about a close, um, maybe as an aside, um, he also has some really fascinating things to say about Adam and Eve in spiritual friendship um, that is maybe still a little bit of a controversial interpretation today. Um, he sees them as, as friends first. Um, and I, I don't really have time to get into that, but it's really interesting. You should read the book. Um, so uh, Elred, uh, speaking about uh, uh, one of his friends, he's kind of giving an example of what friendship looks like, and he's talking about a specific person. He says, having once received him into my friendship, I can never do otherwise than love him. Um, this is the language of a commitment. This is the language of a vow. This is a complex relationship of duties and obligations that are being exchanged between friends, right? This is, um, it, this is much more complex than how we normally think about friendship. This is not just your buddy, right? This is, uh, this is somebody to whom you actually owe things and who owes things to you and who you are kind of like, like mingled up with in a, in a complex way. Um, you know, you, you can't just like move states to another job for this kind of person, right? Um, so uh, this is friendship as kinship, as like grafting someone into our, into our blood family, I guess, right? Um, you know, this is what Christ does for us. And uh, this, this, this should not be like a completely out there analogy, this idea of like your friends as kin. You know, we already have mechanisms for doing this kind of thing in the church, right? That's what godparents are, right? You know, it's somebody who's not related to you who through um, a sacrament, you make part of your family and part of your life and you are bound with them in a way that doesn't easily come undone, right? So this, this is not some huge leap for us to conceptualize friendship in this way. Um, and um, this used to happen more. Um, I'm reading a really fascinating book right now. I haven't gotten very far into it, so I can't bring a lot of it to you. Um, but I'm reading this book called The Friend by the historian Alan Bray. That's a really just a beautiful uh, investigation of this tradition in uh, from the Middle Ages through like the Victorian era of uh, the vowed friendship. Um, so what what this looked like? This is an actual practice that would take place um, where two friends, um, you know, say two knights, for example, like meet on the church steps uh, in a ceremony, and there they promise to care for each other, um, including financially, you know, in the event of the death of one, uh, the survivor will take care of the deceased family and have masses said for their soul, right? That's a really important thing in like pre-modern Catholicism. Um, and then uh, you know, having made those vows to each other, they go into the church and have a, a service um, that's capped off where the two friends are going to exchange the kiss of peace and they'll take the Eucharist together. Um, in, in like kind of pre-Renaissance time, we have mostly record, well, we have only records of this happening between men. Um, I think partly because of the way that like finances and, and other things are coupled into it and we just we don't know a lot about the lives of women in the Middle Ages, unfortunately. Um, it may have existed uh, for women too. But then uh, after the Renaissance, we start seeing more examples of women doing this as well. Um, and uh, it, at times, um, and the, the thing that gets Bray going in this book and started him down this exploration of vowed friendships is um, finding a number of examples of graves where two friends are buried in the same grave. Um, and, and most notably, actually, uh, John Henry Newman 
did this. Um, he was he had himself buried um, with the uh, in the same grave as his dear friend Ambrose St. John, who had died about 20 years prior to his own death. Um, and he made it really clear, like right away when Ambrose died, he said, "That's where I want to be." Um, yeah. So um, I mean, it, it's it's really shocking, right, to see two men sharing a grave. This is not. Um, is not a very contemporary idea, I think. Um, and that, that idea of like being so, uh, having your life so interwoven with somebody else's, um, you know, who you're not married to, who you're not related to, um, being so interwoven that like you'd actually choose to be buried together, um, right? And that like the first thing you'll see at the resurrection is your friend. Um, this, is, this is very alien, I think, to our way of thinking about friendship today. Um, but it's something that gives me a lot of, I mean, like, I, I don't know, I don't know about you, like, I, I kind of want those kind of friendships, right? Like, that's, that's really attractive to me in a certain way. Um, but yeah, we just don't, we don't have a lot of room for this picture of friendship anymore, right? Like, the language of romantic desire so often kind of co-opts uh, that longing for friendship, or, or um, the, the only place to kind of, like, feel those feelings for another person is now in a romantic relationship, right? Um, you know, this is I, one of my favorite movies from the 80s is When Harry Met Sally, but like I kind of have started to hate the ending of it because it suggests that like, nope, there's no friendship between men and women. It's got to be shunted off into uh, a romantic relationship. And that, that's, that seems incorrect. Um, Elred is actually totally fine with um, male-female relationships, by the way. You know, we still think of friendships as like men being friends with men, women being friends with women in general, you know. Um, you have put men and women together, there's, you know, right, you know, um, romantic uh, desire uh, seems to creep in. That's like the, the idea that we all have. Um, but it's interesting, the very first example, right after the passage where he quotes Acts 4 that I read earlier, Immediately after that, when Aylred starts giving examples uh, from the early church of like individuals being friends, the first example that he gives is a man and a woman. Um, anyway, so um, th this, um, yeah, like, like I was saying, the language of romantic desire uh, has kind of co-opted a lot of this, uh, this kind of friendship, and that's sort of the only place where it's allowed um, uh, to exist anymore, those kind of feelings for another person. Um, so... Here's a, here's a quote. No union is more profound than marriage, for it embodies the highest ideals of love, fidelity, devotion, sacrifice, and family. In forming a marital union, two people become something greater than they once were. Now, this, is, uh, this kind of language is something I've heard in a lot of well-meaning wedding homilies, right? Um, but you see how it completely erases the rest of the world. There's no, there's no room for friendship in that. You know, it's saying that if, if you get married, you're doing something that is special and that is better than every other kind of human relationship. Um, and, you know, Elrod, especially being a monk, right, who's taken a vow of celibacy, he doesn't have a lot of patience for that. Um, and uh, this, this particular line is actually from uh, Justice Anthony Kennedy's uh, de decision in Obergefell v. Hodges. That's the, the gay marriage decision uh, from a couple years ago, right? Making it legal uh, in, across the country. Um, so th this is, uh, I have no interest in like talking about the theology of that, uh, of that decision, but I think it's interesting that this is a, uh, a view that is completely compatible with, with secular thought. There is nothing in this that the world at large does not affirm. Um, and I think that's telling, right? We should, we should keep that in mind. Um, I think there's, a, there's an error that we make, especially in American Christianity, to um, we tie marriage and the family, well, well, we elevate it in this way, right? You know, we, um, you know, I mean, we've just gone through an election, you know, like people use the term family values as kind of a, a, a synonym or like a PC way of talking about Christian values, right? The two are synonymous in our like political discourse. Um, and, I, and I think what I want to do kind of gently is maybe try to crack some daylight between the two of those things. Um, you know, not that I don't want to stand up here and dump on the family and dump on marriage. That's absolutely not what I'm here to do. But I, I do think that we need to maybe reevaluate the, the hierarchy there, right? Um, because after all, right, not everyone is going to marry. Not everyone's going to have a family. Um, 
And those people, you know, we all, right, have a need to give love and to receive love. And not just in like a sort of generic love your neighbor way, but like actually from another individual, right? Um, that, that has to happen, you know, and I think um, we need to be careful whenever the church starts elevating one kind of love over the other, right? The, the church can be a terrible place to be lonely, I think. Um, and after all, right, when we think about um, what Christ tells us again in John 15, um, I'm going to use Wesley Hill's translation of John 15, 13. He says, no one has greater love than this, that someone lays down their life for their friends. I love his kind of inclusive uh, translation there. Um, right? That's the highest calling that Jesus gives us. That's the highest example of love, which of course is, um, you know, embodied in himself and his own sacrifice, right? This is what it means to love, is that you give your life for your family? No, for your friends. Um, hopefully your family is your friends, right? Um, I, I, I don't want to segregate this into, well, okay, married people have these sort of sets of concerns, single people have these sort of sets of concerns. That's not, I'm not interested in that, right? Friendship crosses all of those divides. As I said before, it's, it's a kinship kind of thing. It's like grafting somebody into your family. Um, let's see, how are we doing on time here? All right, good, good, good. Um, so, you know, um, but yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll put it out there. You know, I'm standing up here before you single dude, um, a divorced guy, right? So like, you know, by some standards, I've failed, right, uh, to make a family. If, if you see any hint of bitterness in what I'm saying, like, please call me out on it. You know, that's, that's totally fair. I want to hear about that. Um, you know, I, but again, it's not my intention to bag on marriage as an institution. Uh, <laughs> and I, I, think, I think really that like kind of recovering a stronger sense of friendship is really is good for everybody. It's good for marriage and it's good for the family. Um, I'm going to quote the writer, you've touched on it here. Uh, a society in which marriage is the only way for adults to pledge lasting love and care to one another, which is what we've got, right? That's a society in which marriages themselves are weaker. It's a society in which parents have less help, children fewer havens. It's a society in which many adults feel themselves isolated, drifting, and useless. Um, useless is, I think, really the, the key word there, right? You know, I was saying before that we all need to, we all need to and want to give love and to receive love. We, we need to be of use to each other, right? Um, and th this can be achieved through, you know, the, you know, simple actions of charity, you know, um, you know, we bring things in for the refugees out there, we work at a soup kitchen on the weekend or whatever. Um, those are wonderful things, you should be doing those things anyway. But the closer the bond you have with somebody and like the more your life starts to be tied with somebody else's, um, the, the more this kind of usefulness happens, the more occasions for that there are, right? Um, so I don't, I want to be careful here. I don't want to substitute one idol for another, right? I know, you know, if, if we are occasionally guilty of making an idol out of marriage of the family, I, I'm not going to elevate friendship to that level either. I, I don't want to suggest that friendship is some panache that's going to fix panache, panacea. I always get those confused. <laughs> I don't want to suggest that it's some panacea that's going to just fix all of your problems. Hey, make sure you find a close friend and you're good. Um, this is not about friendship as a fix to loneliness and to everything that's wrong with you. It, it's rather about finding an opportunity to give love and to be loved, right? You know, as married people in the room know, marriage doesn't fix all your problems, right? Um, but what it does is, is having that, that vow, right, that promise that you can lean on, um, you know, and removing that sense of kind of nebulousness and contingency to the relationship, but actually like, you know, making a promise to each other, um, that gives you something to lean on when it gets hard, right? Um, and that there's, in fact, a link uh, we see in the Bible between friendship and suffering, right? Um, obviously, Jonathan and David maybe comes to mind. You know, that's a friendship that um, is tinged with sadness right from the beginning of it. And it really, and, you know, and it gets sadder and sadder as it goes on. Um, both, of, both David and Jonathan suffer tremendously for each other. Um, that's kind of all they do, almost. Um, you know, and that, right, obviously, we have what Jesus said in John 15, you know, Greater love has no man than the one who lays down his life for his friends, right? Friendship maybe culminates in, in a, a sacrificial death. Um, and we also look at what Christ does with John and Mary from the cross. You know, he makes them family. He says, you know, mother, behold your son, son, behold your mother, right? Um, that, that kind of, of uh, 
what I want to, you know, grafting, that, that kind of kinship that Jesus creates there um, comes from and is, is like necessarily related to like the deep suffering that's happening in that scene as well, right? Um, so it's not about friendship fixing your problems. It's, it's rather about like finding a way, people that you can count on, you know, a place that you can choose to endure with each other and to stay with each other, right? And that's, that's kind of the bitter truth of the, the tweet that I put up there earlier is that, you know, as the older you get, um, seems like the fewer friends you have, you know, the people that you're close to, they, they leave for, you know, good reasons. You know, they move away for their family or for a job or because, you know, uh, they have a spouse or whatever, right? Um, but that, um, that's something that we kind of just accept as part of life. And I'm suggesting that maybe there, there's another way, right? Um, so I guess uh, concluding and then, uh, yeah, we have a little time for questions. Um, what I'm trying to get across is that, um, or kind of the final point I want to make here, friendship is not just a, uh, a special and purely private thing. Um, it's, it's rather a, a facet of the common good, right? Ultimately, friendship allows us to love each other. Um, friendship is valuable in part, um, you know, not just in and of itself. That's kind of the greatest thing that it's valuable for is just the simple fact of loving somebody else and being loved by them. But um, it also gives us a concrete situation in which to practice loving our neighbor, right? It's not this kind of abstract, well, love your neighbor. Who's my neighbor? I don't know. They're out there somewhere, um, you know. Right? It, it teaches us hospitality and self-sacrifice. You know, sometimes we say the law is a teacher, but um, friendship is a teacher as well, right? It like gives you a concrete way where you can work these things out. Um, this is invaluable training in the Christian life, right? The better friend you are able to be, and it's easy to be a good friend, right? I mean, most of the time because you have that natural affection for each other, like we were saying before, right? You love them. Um, so then, I mean, this brings me back to... Uh, to Newman, so right, the best preparation for loving the world at large and loving it duly and wisely is to cultivate an, an, an intimate friendship and affection towards those who are immediately about us, right? You make friends so that you can love the world. And this is kind of the final image of spiritual friendship, this really beautiful and startling image of friendship as Jacob's Ladder, right? Um, here, here's Jacob's ladder uh, as it's carved on the Abbey of Bath. It's actually like on the side uh, or like on the front doors of the cathedral there. Where there's, so there's actually on both sides of the door, <coughs> angels going up to heaven. Um, right? For Aylred, friendship is Jacob's ladder on which we ascend to adore our God and experience his love. And then we descend and we love our neighbor from that. Uh, and so I'll, I'll leave you with that. But if anybody has questions or things they want to talk about. Um, yeah. Yes. The mic. Yeah, yeah, please. Oh so this, this is really good, but at the same time, I just keep thinking about in the beginning of Acts when Peter first gets up and preaches the gospel, and he basically just like, yeah, you notice Jesus, you guys crucified him, and sitting at the right hand of the Father. So there, that everyone, and it says they're, they're cut to the heart. Uh, and, and they're like, ah, what do we do? Now this guy is literally God. And um, and Peter's like, this is what you should do. You should repent of your sins, right? But I feel like in the same way, um, culturally, it's sex and marriage that is ascended to the throne and now reigns mm. over all of our relationships. And so with you saying what you're saying about friendship, I'm like, oh my gosh, that's awesome. But I'm cut to the heart by knowing that I feel like, just like those people, I am, and all of us are, damned to this relational hell where um, <laughs> that's strong that's, okay that's, that's what's going to my life that's good that's because you know i can't have a friendship with someone right mm. i can't you know i can't get to know a woman or a man and feel um like excitement or kinship with them without interpreting those feelings as being sexual or romantic in some yeah, it's, it's, it's hard, right? Like, especially like the more, I mean, you know, we use intimacy as like a euphemism for sex, basically, right? Like, that's a really telling thing, I think, about our culture. Um, yeah, like, I don't, I don't have like an answer for you or a solution, but like, yeah. So what do we do? And it's like, to what do we repent? Or how, you know, how do we change this? It doesn't seem like there isn't, like, this is awesome and I want this. Oh, Bethany has an answer. Okay, yes. Thank you. Amen. <laughs> I was like, well, I was bring it in my, my ears because 
we are so often either, yeah, like what you're saying, kind of interpret all our attraction to someone in a sexual way, which is actually not necessary, or we also pit friendship against marriage because in friendship mm -hmm. seems like a threat. And in, and I'm not, and maybe in some cases, if there's a history of fidelity or someone's been cheated on, like, I want to be, let those people act with wisdom in their own context. But, like, if, if you are, like, the virtue of chastity, I think, is the perfect ground for friendship. Because if you have a strong marriage, that's, you're not going to be easily threatened by a friend outside. You know, and, and you can trust each other to like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I think this is kind of yeah. self-explanatory, but like, you know. And just to add, like, yeah. Thing, yeah. I think what, it's hard to do, but you have to stop looking for everything in one place. Whether that's mm -hmm. your best friend, whether that's your family, whether that's a spouse, whatever. Kid, it doesn't matter. We have to stop looking for all of our fulfillment in one perfect thing. That one perfect thing is the Lord. So you can look there, but on this level, with humans, we have to be able to understand that, like, it, it's not this hierarchy, right? It's yeah. not like, oh, marriage will fix all of this, or, oh, if I have a kid, this will fix this, or I just really need a solid best friend. No, it, it's like, it's more than that. Yeah, um, yeah, go ahead. Uh, it seems the monks had several key advantages. For one. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Um, yeah. There was yeah. low turnover, and they had a tremendous amount of time to get, in, get to know each other. I, on the other hand, work 50 hours a week or more in a high turnover situation um, and have very little time outside of work to get to know anybody. None of my neighbors will talk to me, and I see all of you maybe twice a week if I'm lucky. Yeah, I mean, what you've expressed is like a really concise criti critique of our culture. Yeah. If I put forward any effort to get to know my coworkers on a friendship level, chances are I will have my heart ripped in two within six months to a year when they get fired or they leave for a higher paying position. And I am tired of it. I just can't expect mm -hmm. any more emotional effort into it. And yet, for some reason, I still find myself helping. Bless you, I guess. But yeah, that I mean, it's really hard. I don't have easy answers here. Um, Joy? Yes, thank you for saying that. All right, and I'm getting the hand. <laughs> What's that? Oh, all right, fair enough. All right. Um, thanks. Sorry, I wish we had more time.